You were saying, what were you saying a while ago about, about uh, oh, Charlie Cobb, about uh, Julian Bond's election? You went door to door, was it? Where was this? In Georgia, what uh, town? Atlanta. It was in Atlanta itself. Is Atlanta, has, is Atlanta, Atlanta itself has undergone quite a change, hasn't it? It's become much more sophisticated than it was 30 years ago. I don't know for sure about the changes <laughs> in terms of, say, between the, that race riot they had in yeah. 1919 and uh, now. But um, they reapportioned. See, we had two Negro. It's a very interesting political scene, I think, because because um, you had two Negro, you had two Negro state senators who won elections. One won in '62, and the other one in '64. And so you had them in the state senate. You have very strong middle class. I mean, and and they're strong financially, so they have weight on the economic scene, and we're in a position to use those senators, I think, to lobby for a, re a reapportionment that would be beneficial, you know, to Negro aspirants mm. to the state legislature, which is exactly what they did. And you wound up with, you know, with eight districts where, you know, the population was 80, 90 percent Negroes. This is a very thrilling event that Charlie Cobb, uh, one of our guests, is describing. He's seated around the microphone with Stokely Carmichael and Cortland Cox, three veteran SNCC field workers in the deep, deep south, and describing Stokely Carmichael, who's considered one of the leading wits <laughs> of the SNCC movement, as well as well, Cortland oh. Cox and Charlie Cobb, something to say about that, I know. But this event that Charlie's talking about, Charlie was campaign manager for the poet, Julian Bond, who in the first... Negro representatives elected in the state of Georgia, wasn't he? Snickfield secretary. <laughs> his what? His Snick claim to fame is that he's a Snickfield secretary. A Snickfield <laughs> secretary. As Thank you, something. Well, this event, how did this come about? This sounds, you know, uh, to many people here in Chicago, it sounds like a remarkable event, and yet we know it didn't happen accidentally. It happened because of people like our three guests. Julian Bond elected in Georgia to the state legislature. So uh, we'll keep us a free, wide open discussion involving SNCC itself, of course, and experiences of our three guests. So you were saying, Charlie, continue with Stokely and Cortland pitching in here too. Well, see, I guess you can, if, if you were to describe, you know, you know, for, for, for so people could understand at least one very clear nature of our work, you could say it's political, and that, that takes on a lot of different forms and shape. And one of the areas that we, in terms of our work in the South, that we've never really had an opportunity to experiment with is politics in the traditional political frame, because there just haven't been any openings in the Deep South. And the first place that this ever happened was in the state of Georgia with reapportionment, which I described to you about the re, you know, what the Negroes did because of their rather unique position in Atlanta itself. And the question for SNCC, I think, was for Julian, you know, Julian hinted that he, that he was going to run and then, you know, turned off and on, you know, about running. I mean, cause, you know, cause of our own attitudes in the organization about politics and, and all of that. My own feeling being that, you know, the most violent thing in the country is politics. And, uh, 
he finally decided to run at the last minute, which meant that there wasn't really enough time to, say, get him to run as an independent because you had to go through the process of getting signatures, etc. And so he decided to run as a Democrat because that was just a matter of laying down uh, $500, which we borrowed from the community, and you're automatically a Democrat. And very interesting because as soon as Julian registered as a Democratic candidate, his father, who was uh, on the executive board of the Republican Party, resigned to support Julian in his campaign. I suppose that was, and, uh, uh, this leads sure to a, a matter that I know concerns the three of you and all SNCC field workers, uh, the question of generations. Here was Julian Vaughn's father who was a, what a, he was a Republican yeah. in a traditional party in the state of Georgia. And this question of generations, you know, uh, you were young and I suppose did you encounter originally in work, in your work, some trepidation on the part of elderly, older people, generation ahead of you? Oh, I don't know. The Stokely. Older civil rights groups usually look to SNCC as the young hotheads and the irresponsible people who need guidance in order to do what they're doing correctly. Uh, of course, we are opposed to all of this. We're diametrically opposed within the organization because we feel that you know, within a given situation that a civil rights organization, a national civil rights organization, shouldn't be allowed to make decisions for a local area, but that the people within that area should make those decisions. That has a lot to do with how you view an organization, how it gets tied up across the country. For example, I could never see working in Mississippi and asking people in Mississippi for money let's say for the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, and then taking that money out of Mississippi and paying a SNCC field secretary in New York to write up something. I think that money should be used in Mississippi, and that is just, just ludicrous to ask those people to give money to support. They should give it to support their own organizations. For instance, that's, I think, the trouble with the Freedom Democratic Party. That the money used there should go for the Freedom Democratic Party and not to SNCC. That's one of the reasons why we, in the very beginning, said we would not have membership dues or anything like that. So uh, is, isn't that one of the key aspects of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, the fact that there's very little administrative, you know, from afar expense, and that it's, it, it, the dough goes exactly where the problem is, isn't it? It goes uh, where uh, the action is. Where the action is. <laughs> <laughs> That's we're members of the Pepsi generation. <laughs> <laughs> you can say that. <laughs> well, I hope they um, I think that, I mean, it's traditional to think, I mean, elders to think that, as, I mean, Stokely was commenting last night, the elders to counsel and the youth to action. And that's, so that's played on. That's played on. Old men to counsel, young men to war. Well, I think that that's the attitude that many people of not of our generation have towards us. And as long as we are considered the uh, battle-scarred youngsters, uh, we're in our place. Uh, when we get out of that place in terms of 
making decisions about what we want to do ourselves and how we want to project things, then we run into trouble. Yeah, that runs right across the country, because could you imagine what would happen, let's say, if all those soldiers fighting in Vietnam decided to make the policy <laughs> about <Yeah>. Vietnam? <laughs> it just couldn't happen. Now, the people who make the policies have to be the McNamara's and the Rusks, yeah. but they don't do the fighting. Now, our theory is that the people who do the fighting should make the decisions. Now, I would, I would assume, see, that if all the soldiers in Vietnam were really allowed to make decisions, a lot of them would decide to come home to their wives. <laughs> this is an interesting parallel, and this then, I think yeah, this parallel you draw, you know, a strange old thing, is this is the way SNCC works then, isn't it? The people who actually working in the field are the decision makers. Doesn't this raise a problem of question of how, you know, a question of to avoid anarchy, you know, uh, yeah. coordination. That's a there bad a lot word. <laughs> <laughs> well, there are a lot of problems in that. Yeah. I mean, I mean, the problems between, because see, we do have an administrative structure. I mean, that's fact. I mean, we have a chairman, an executive committee, executive secretary, and they all function one way or another. Sometimes we wonder, <laughs> <laughs> but they do function yeah. now. And there's, there's this constantly reoccurring problem and argument discussion about. I mean how your administrative structure relates relates to your work because obviously, at least in the minds I think of most SNCC people, is it's really inconsistent with what we believe and say project in our work, you know, to have the work, you know, controlled administratively. I mean, couldn't do that. Yet, you know, your administrative structure, I mean, there's need there's does serve some function, and, and it's just not clear at this point. I mean, we're, that's a real long, I think, really a complicated, deep problem that I don't know whether we'll ever resolve. See, I read this article. On a I usually don't read articles and books about the people write about. I did break down once and, and read one. And, um, Is Howard Zinn's book, The New Abolitionist? No, I haven't no. read it. No. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I read this article in The Nation, and the one thing I consider really profound is... Jack Newfield's article. Was that the one? I think uh, that was either Newfield or Kopkind. Andrew Kopkind. Now, the one profound thing I thought he said that showed really a lot of insight was that, that the freedom movement, you know, has acquired increasing momentum and power, really, in terms of its influence on the political, on the American scene, really, and that that will probably grow, and that as it grows, what what will what will be raised, what will happen is, is that there'll be increasing conflict between those who want more freedom and those who want more movement. See, uh, and movement, say, representing organization as opposed to freedom, which remains undefined, I think. And he, is, and he went on to say that nobody knows whether this ever will be resolved, ever can be resolved, but that SNCC, I mean, that SNCC is probably digging deepest at trying to work out some kind of way to resolve. Isn't this a complex. fascinating challenge? We hear so much talk, the individual today says, you know, so much bureaucracy. If those who attack bureaucracy, well, they can back SNCC which is exactly the opposite of bureaucratic, isn't it? This, uh, uh, this matter, uh, Stokely or uh, Cartland, or, you know, that people, the individual feels helpless in view of so many things happening. This is the phrase you hear so often, you know, I'm helpless. Snick is saying exactly the opposite, isn't it? 
Well, if you look at it this way, uh, executive, one thing that I think the people in the country, ordinary little people, are not allowed to do is to act. I mean, to move and to have motion. And that one of the things that executives are supposed to do uh, to execute and to act and to be in motion. And one of the things that, I mean, I say as an individual, and talk about I mean, a lot of thinking, that, that I should make decisions about my life and I, sh I should be allowed to act. And I think that once you start on that, I mean, it, I mean, according to the analogy that Stokely gave about Vietnam and what the MFDP was trying to say in Atlantic City, that we as ordinary little people should be allowed to act and not be told what to do and how to do it and when to do it. And that was... In well, this is almost a, a dream come true, and a strange old dream. I know you have a battle, a fantastic battle. We'll hear about your, your experiences and yourselves. But this, this very thing we dream about is what you're trying to make a reality. That the man on the street, the guy says, look, I have a will and I can do something. And I can accomplish. Isn't, isn't this pretty much Nick's credo then? Yeah, yeah, but we have so much to fight. I mean, you fight the whole philosophy of the country. You fight the Horatio Alger myth. lie, yeah. not myth, lie. Yeah. <laughs> That's what you fight. Yeah. You see, I think that the country has certain criterias for what most Nick people call qualified. Right? I, I narrowed it down to three. There's either money. If you have money, then you become qualified. There is formal education, a college degree, and the higher up you go, the more qualified you become. And the final one is who you know. If you have those three things in any combination or any one, then you can become qualified to help make decisions in the country. Now, what happens in the country, see, and why I say what Horatio Aljo has as a myth, is that only certain people are allowed to have these three things. I mean, like a college education. It costs $1,710 per year per student to go to a private institution of higher education. And for state school, it runs about $1,000. Now, an American family of average income, white, white, can't send his kid to college unless he gets a scholarship. And you only give scholarship to gifted people, not average people. Or athletes. Or athletes. <laughs> and they're gifted, too. <laughs> And you, you can't get a federal loan until you're enrolled in school, and they're very few and sparse. So that if indeed they were serious about that, what they'd have to do is to open the doors for higher education for everybody. So then they can become part of that qualified thing. But then, you see, they're not qualified. So what the country says is that only the people who have one of these three things can make decisions, can become politicians, and can get projected in the newspapers as, as people who speak. Now what I found out when, when I worked in Mississippi was that the people who were unqualified, the people who didn't have any of these three things, believed that. I mean, they didn't believe that they were capable of analyzing their own situations and posing solutions. They doubted their own sense That's of right. personal worth. And they were waiting around for someone like, let's say, a Martin Luther King, who does have one of these three criterias, to tell them what to do to get out of the problems that they were in and that our main job was to convince them that they were qualified to talk and do the things that were needed to get them out of that. That's why it was important to project a Miss Fanny Lou Hamer rather than a Snickfield secretary who did have a college degree. 
And, but that runs rampant throughout the country. I dare say even in Chicago, people who live in slum areas don't feel that they can solve and get out of those slum areas themselves unless you have somebody who's right. Actually, what, I'm, I'm sorry, go ahead, Jerry. And what happens then, just to continue what Stokely says, because I agree, is that then when you, because he's Stokely Carmichael. <laughs> 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 uh, what happens when people do start deciding whether it's the decision to to go down to the courthouse because they that's the first expression I ever heard of this fear that you weren't qualified when people say vote that's white folks business you know uh, whether it's from going down to the county courthouse or or trying to work out a, na a problem of national scope say poverty uh, that when people really try and decide and work out and pose solutions then of course it threatens people who are qualified. So they have to move to control. Now, that might be you know, an assault at the county courthouse, which is one way of control, to using, say, some institution just to discredit the people, or something like that, which you know is increasingly happening, say, the SNCC, the FDP, mm -hmm. and, and other organizations around the country who are trying to say FDP, things. Freedom Democratic Party, for those right. listeners who because may Because SNCC isn't the only one trying to do these kinds of things. And uh, so they have to move to, to control people, and which you know I think maybe is really at the crux of, of the disfranchisement in this country. Negroes, whites, just, just everybody. And my own way of articulating that, see, I think that what people say say about SNCC or about what we do is that it's disorderly and that my own view of that is that you know just that the country's disorderly I mean the country's in absolute disorder chaos I mean in this sense in that people don't have a right to order their own lives you know our values are in disorder oh, yeah. I don't know I'm not being as even as specific I'm just saying the yeah. country is yeah. in disorder at every level. Yes. Well, you can be specific. I mean, you can relate that very specifically to the war in Vietnam. I mean, okay. here, here is a war that was started essentially by President Johnson and a few other people. I mean, it's becoming a war. And at the Congress of the United States, even the Congress couldn't say anything. But within the arena and the political atmosphere that we have in this country, the people who are fighting the people who are being made killers and who are being killed have nothing to say about it. For example, if my draft board calls me tomorrow, I go to them and I say, I don't believe in killing anybody for anything at all. See, Then what they say to me is that, well, either you go or you're a traitor. They've labeled me. And I become a traitor and a coward, or I go and become a killer. But that's all. those are the only two alternatives open to me. So if I'm a traitor, I go to Leavenworth for a couple of years. Or if I become a patriot, see, the other choice is that I become a patriot and a hero, I become a killer over something that I really have no concept about at all. But I know a few people in the country are very clear on it, very clear on what's going on in Vietnam. I'm not, but I'll be made to fight. The people who have a clear conception of that are not the fighters, though. Well, of course, this is a fascinating parallel. Go ahead, Jerry. Yeah, that's a perfect example of the kind of disorder I'm talking about. I mean, just can't, there's no way in this country to really order your life. I mean, if you try and do that, then in terms of the way the country is ordered, you're being disorderly. 
I mean, at every level, whether it's a street demonstration or talking to the draft board. It's a real problem because what happens then, I mean, it's so strong. I mean, the, these things that tie you in a very orderly fashion in this country is that you just can't move in any direction. I mean, because then you, you know, you're afraid or, you know, you're not qualified. Or you're a communist. You're a mm -hmm. communist. You are the thousand and one labels, maybe. Specific, uh, uh, Cartland. Well, they could do you like they did the Indians, put you on a reservation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's precisely the first yeah. thing about control. I mean, the first attempt to control in the country was the Indians. I mean, you put them on the reservation. I mean, they've developed more sophisticated methods, with the exception of World War II, when they put the Japanese in... Uh, in those Concentration camps. All right, but I think that that's what they call relocation camps. I think that one of the, the 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 I mean for for especially for people in the north that they always say the south is such a bad place, and that's something outside of us, and what we are, in Chicago say or New York, San Francisco, and that those people are bad. Well, that's that's not true because I mean. Those people are like them, another level. And I think that if we take the two, the two wars or the two ways of life that we're defending or that, that's being defended in the country, you, look, you begin to see that whole thing. In the South, you're allowed to kill for the Southern way of life, and the country dislikes it. I mean, North dislikes it because that's not their way of life. And they, then they turn around and then kill for their way of life. Inside. You know, they kill, say they kill people in Santo Domingo or Vietnam or the Congo, Venezuela, or that, that or different things like that for their way of life. Or Bay of Pigs in Cuba. I mean, or I mean, they have, I mean, so what you have is then that, I mean, it's very hard for people in the North to see that the people that they condemn in the South are really the same type of people they are, motivated by the same types of things. You raise an interesting question here, this matter of North and South, the Northern white, the Southern white, the sort of a self-righteous look by the North, the South, without facing its own reality. Oh, Can I ask you for a uh, prediction? <laughs> when eventually there will be, you know, integration, where will it come first? Integration? I mean, I don't know, it's very hard yeah. for me to think in terms of yeah integration and segregation, north or south, because I just don't see it as possible, integration in any real sense, unless the country is really prepared to radically change. There's no way, because there's not, I mean, you can't integrate the schools, north or south, partly because of what Stokely says, and partly because, see, white schools, I guess, in terms of what the country defines as education, the white schools are best, north and south. Now, and the best students from the white schools go to the best colleges, or the students with the most money go to the best white schools and have enough money to go to college. Now, it seems to me that there's not enough room in the colleges for all the white people. And as, because everybody's been talking about for the last 10 years, this big college, this big scramble to the college, and they quote figures about how many folks are going and how many are going mm -hmm. in 1970. Mm -hmm. And they say, oh, there's not enough college space for all the students who want to go. If you add Negroes into those schools, it's going to jeopardize. I mean, then, you know, jeopardizes the chance. Less white people are going to have a chance of going. Uh, 
And the parents are not going to dig that. I don't care whether that's north or south. I mean, it just cuts across those boundaries. I think that operates just at every level, jobs, politics. Maybe it doesn't matter so much in, in, in lunch counter kinds of things so much. I mean, well, one thing is poor people can't, the restaurants that desegregate are the big restaurants. I mean, Sun and Sand in Jackson. I mean, not too many sharecroppers wander up in the Sun and Sand <laughs> to spend That's the night, you know? You just Middle class integration. Yeah, I mean, I think just integration yeah. is, is just not going to happen unless the country is, is just going to have to change. Isn't what you're really asking for is a change in the basic values of our society? Isn't that what you're really asking for? Integration is merely one aspect of it, isn't, isn't that? Well, I think basic? that's where we started. I mean, but, see, I think the Negro is in a particular advantage, vantage point in terms of the American society and that the American society can use the Negro in terms of analyzing its own structure and values because the Negro is at the bottom of the ladder uh, economically, politically, and socially so that he feels all the idiosyncrasies of this society on him most severe. Yeah, most deeply. Most severe, see? And uh, that's what the country can do. For example, the problems of jobs. And what, what things becoming so automated and so t technical and hardly anybody understanding them, even the inventors who invent them, the Negro is going to be the first to go. Now, he'll be the first to go now because he doesn't have any skill, not just because he's a Negro. Now, of course, he doesn't have any skill because he was a Negro. But then a lot of white people are going to go. I, when I used to go to school, I used to travel the New Jersey Turnpike quite frequently. And they had these white guys. The job was never integrated. People in the car always used to complain about it and say, we ought to do something about integrating those jobs. But they had white people who just stand there and hand out these tickets. Hey, about 40, 40-ish. And I'd think to myself, that's the most boring job in the world, just standing there and handing out a ticket on a toll booth. About three years later, I passed through the New Jersey Turnpike, and those guys weren't even there. They're just a little machine, you grab a ticket and you keep going. Now, those were all white guys. And I thought to myself, now, what can a 40-year-old guy in this society who's been handing out tickets do? See, so that across the country, you have white people being displaced jobs too, but now, the Negro is going to feel it hardest because he's going to be the first to go. Now, if the society was serious, it can analyze that situation. It's the thing that Charlie talks about with college. I mean, the Negro can't go to college because he makes less money than anybody else, but an awful lot of white people can go. I think the sa thing that saves white people is that psychological identification. Like if President Johnson appears on television and I'm looking at television with a white boy, he can identify with Johnson right away. I can't. I just said, is that a whole color, yeah. color thing that stops me from even going on? So maybe he can live the Horatio Alger lie. But I know for a lot of white people, a lot of white people in this country, you just can't live that Horatio Alger lie. Because there's no hope of getting to college, getting money, or anything. You know, I think uh, these insights, I think what's I feel rewarding about this roundtable thus far to me are the insights of three leading SNCC field workers here, Stokely Carmichael, Cartland Cox, and Charlie Cobb, that this is more than a question, clearly more than a question of integration per se. Far more is involved here. It's finding who we are, what we're, everybody, black and white, is what you're really doing deep down. And I think it would be good for us to know how you got that way, each of it, sort of autobiographical, in a sense, how you became part of it. So who do we start with Stokely, you know, Stokely Carmichael? How did it happen? 
Uh, and then we go cart like that. Well, I was born in the West Indies in Trinidad, and I spent my early childhood there. And while the country economically is controlled by the whites, that is from England, because it was then the British West Indies, everything else though was was black. For example, the the immediate authority, teachers, preachers, the politicians, everything was black, so that for me there was an immediate identification. I could aspire to be one of these things. And I moved to New York City, moved around Harlem and the Lower Bronx. Everything was white. The policemen, the teachers, the preachers, the politicians. And that, I think, was the first thing that struck me very, very clearly, because now I couldn't identify with that. I went to a special school called uh, the Bronx High School of Science in New York, which is supposed to be one of the top academic schools in the country. At that school, there were about, I think, in the whole school, there were about 10 Negroes. And what I found out about those situations, because I've, I've had physical reprisals in the South from white people, and at science, I had mental, mental anguish from white people. And I found out that you can't really compare the two of them. And sometimes I think even the mental anguish is worse than the physical anguish. And just the way they, things that they said to me and how they moved around and how they viewed me as being their best friend and being an exception to Negroes and not an exception to whites. Because indeed, as far as they were concerned, academically speaking, I was an exception to white people across the country. And every white person didn't go to Bronx High School of Science but they never viewed it that way. I was just an exception to Negroes because they had their own views of Negroes in Harlem, drinking wine and cutting people and being dirty and filthy, etc. And I began to ask myself whether or not I was an exception, and I began to move from there. And during that period, I listened to a lot of discussion about the color, the color question. And what I found out about that was that the people who were always solving these problems, or who pretended to solve these problems, were people who were very much tied up within that structure itself. I mean, people like Ralph Bunch at that time used to do quite a bit of speaking on on the color question. Oh, for instance, people like Carl T. Rowan or Robert Weaver, but that they were all tied up within that structure. And in my own thinking, whether or not I was correct or incorrect, valid or invalid, it seemed that they were the people that were allowed to escape out of the cage that we had. The exceptional ones. Yeah, they, but they, they were allowed that. I mean, it wasn't because of any great thing. Now, I, if I had followed on that track, see, I would have attended an Ivy League college, mm-hmm. and I would have been allowed to escape too, and I would have been the example for the rest of Negroes that, indeed, Carl T. Rowan has made have been the head of the United States yeah. Information <laughs> Yes. <laughs> I, too, could speak for the Negro. <laughs> That's what I found out. So I began to question all those things very seriously. And when I asked questions, I always got stock answers. See, if you asked a question in class about why do you need a police force, the first thing that people would say is because people are bad. And you need a police force to keep those bad people down. Now, everybody who said people are bad never thought that they themselves were bad. It was everybody else who was bad. So you need a police force. Or, or why do you need armies? You need armies because people will fight. But they weren't the people who fight, it was the other people. And so I thought that maybe what I had to do was start talking to the other people. 
who would fight and find out from them. I found out in Mississippi there are a lot of towns without a police force. The county, Lowndes County, Alabama, where I'm working now, there are only three policemen in the whole county. It's one of the biggest counties in Alabama. And people somehow seem to make it. I mean, they're squabbles, but they, they just plot along, and there isn't as much crime, let's say, in other places where there are a lot more policemen. This is a very fascinating point. Go ahead, Stokey, the yeah. continue the saga of Stokey Carmichael. <laughs> then we'll go to Kirkland and Cox yeah, and, and Charlie Cox. And I wanted, yeah. wanted to know why it is that, that there are these things. So now, the, the solutions that were posed were always the stock answers, and I thought they were wrong. So that means you had to start thinking differently. I mean, the reason why it's hard for SNCC people to communicate to the rest of the people in the country is because we think differently. It, it depends upon who you see when you get up in the morning. Uh, we see sharecroppers. We see people who have been pushed outside of anything in their framework called society. And they're the ones we live with, and they're the ones we talk with. And we learn from them. I mean, we don't teach them. We learn from them. We learned to view society the way they viewed it. Now, they viewed it this way for years, but the difference is it never got the projection because college people would never think of that. They would solve the problem for the people, and the way to solve the problem was to give the people more education and uh, give them some more initiative and let Horatio Alger wave his magic wand and they all make money. This is, uh, you know, as Stokely's point, uh, depends who you see when you get up in the morning. Who did you see when you got up in the morning, starting at the beginning, Cortland Cox? Right. And where was this? Well, I was born in Harlem, in Harlem Hospital. But my parents were also from Trinidad. See, all, all great intellectuals <laughs> and radicals <laughs> in the Negro movement of West Indians. <laughs> uh, we let Charlie Cobb hang around with us. <laughs> And uh, I went to the West Indies when I was four and came back when I was 12. And uh, my mother wanted to, I guess, believing that going to a public school with, where the quality of education was pretty bad, decided that I should go to Catholic school. And I found myself being the first and only Negro in there. And uh, I think some of the things that Stokely talked about in mental anguish was, uh, I had some of those experiences also. The thing that used to bother me was that they never talked about the Negro in the Catholic schools. They were too busy talking about Jews. <laughs> and Fascinating point. And I, I knew who was next. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I usually stood in the corner in those discussions. Um, I think my involvement uh, began with a single act. And that act of going on a picket line. I don't think that I, I think that I might have been anxious about many things. But I think that through action, those things became clear and I be began to develop a rationale about them. Uh, and the belief that I can act and move and my thinking and, and think about things and try to make them a reality was the, I guess, the thing that sustained me and still is sustaining me. Uh, I guess that's about me. It was an act. We'll, re we'll return to the two sagas <laughs> in a moment, our two West Indian friends. <laughs> now we come to Charlie Cobb. Yeah, speak American. <laughs> uh, 
Thank you, boss man. <laughs> uh, I lived in the South, part of Kentucky. Man, Kentucky. Four years. Went to four grades in Kentucky. Was it in a city or is it rural? Frankfurt. Thing? Frankfurt. It's the capital, but it's rural. Uh, and the school was three rooms, and I have a lot of sharp impressions. I don't know how living in Kentucky affected me. I haven't sat down and analyzed that yet, but I just know that I can detail that whole town. I haven't been there maybe for 15 years, but that I know like how the town is laid out. I mean, it, some kind of way it left a vivid impression on me. But anyway, I went to school in Massachusetts, Springfield. I went to high school, college prep school. Now, first, first thing I should say about my neighborhood was that when we moved, we were the second Negro family moved into in Massachusetts. Moved into this neighborhood. In Massachusetts. Yeah, and that when I was in elementary school, it was just a handful of Negro kids until the next year that was all Negro. <laughs> and society. <laughs> I didn't understand that too well. And I went to all Negro junior high school. And see, now the college, the high schools come up to you in junior high school and they say, you should come to my high school, college prep, or you should come to my high school, it's the trade school. They recruit you for these high schools, five of them, business school, prep school, technical school, trade school, and Catholic school. <laughs> and it's like small university. And um, so my mother signed me up for the college prep school. You had to take these cards home, you know, get your parents to sign them. <coughs> and the counselor called me in and told me how I wanted to be able to do something when I got out of high school, so I should go to the trade school and whip down another card to bring home for the trade school. And my mother didn't appreciate that. It was a big uproar because she was ticked off because she couldn't get a job teaching in her field because they didn't hire Negroes in the high school at that time. So I was living through all that. And I was moving. See, like in and out of middle class community during my junior high school and high school years. In other words, my mother and father's circle of friends were essentially middle class, I guess. Negro middle class, maybe some difference. Um, but that's what they were, are. And a lot of people see that I had known in junior high school, you know, were, you know, just from the dregs of the ghetto, I mean, the kids I had been to school with. And I knew them, and you know, they took me to the pool hall and the joints and all that, so I learned to move in that world. You know, so on Sundays I would dress up, make the church, you know. It's Father's Medicine. Father's Medicine, yeah, make the church in the middle of the night. I whip it off Sunday afternoon <laughs> <laughs> to get on the block. <laughs> so, and this happened all on. Now I had a feeling in high school, because I was one of six Negroes in high school, that I was being used by, by all the white people because it was this really exactly like what Cortland outlined, you know. And I especially had that feeling my sister came into school with me because they made her cheer, first Negro cheerleader and all this jazz, you know. I so Negro first. <laughs> so you have, you know, you, you get invited to all these parties and things and teachers would, would say, well, you ought to read this book especially. You know, and you know, be a book uh, um, that would give me some culture. 